the focus comes on humans. And the climax, the apex of all creation is the creation of humans. And they are created to be male and female as equals to one another. And it is image and likeness. This is found in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. This is a very powerful section because if you go to your Bibles and you look at this, verse 26 is prose, meaning it's telling a story. And then verse 27 is poetry. And you'll see that it's indented because whenever the Bible indents things, well, whenever the translators indent things, they're trying to communicate to you that this is more poetic language. And then verse 28 is prose again, just story. And then, and then, and then, and then. That's what prose are. And then she went to the store, and then she bought broccoli, and then she brought it home, and now she's chopping broccoli. Those are prose, is when you just tell a series of events. Poetry is when there is parallelism and, and, and mirrorism and that kind of stuff. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. What God says is he says, Let us create humans in our image to rule and subdue. Then, in verse 27, you get this poetry. It says, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And it's a, there's a parallelism there. And then in verse 28, now that humans are created, he says, go out, be fruitful, and multiply, and rule and subdue creation. He bookends this. He start, there's a parallel. In the beginning, he says, I'm going to create the image to rule and subdue. And then he creates them, male and female, and then he tells them to rule and subdue. So the fact that he says this twice, right before the creation, rule and subdue, and right after their creation, rule and subdue, tells you that the whole purpose of being the image of God is to rule and subdue. That's the whole point. That's why he created them. There's some of us who are like, ooh, that's kind of uncomfortable. God created humans to rule and subdue. Rule and subdue are negative terms. Dictators rule and subdue. Corrupt powers rule and subdue. Abusive spouses rule and subdue. Um, legalistic, authoritative pa- parents rule and subdue. Don't know if there's anything wrong with authoritative parents, but in that extreme kind of a sense. We think of those in negative senses. But remember, this is pre-fall. There is no sin. There is no corruption. Nothing is corrupted yet. So the idea of rule and subdue is a positive term. Nothing becomes negative until sin introduces. Sin is the corruption of things that are good. Where do we see this word image? The word image appears in the Bible used of idols. You're like, what? We're idols? Well, not really. The word image is used of idols because an idol reminds you of the authority and the power and your obedience to that God. The gods are way up there above the mountains and above the sky, and you can't see them. And they don't want to hang out with you because they don't like you. So they need to remind you who's an authority and who has power. They put these images everywhere, the equivalent of spy cameras, Big Brother's watching you today. They put these cameras everywhere, these idols, and they believe that the spirit of the God actually enters into the idol, a little bit of the spirit. So that everywhere you go, the idol is literally watching you. And so the, the gods are watching you through their spirit in the idol, 
and it's to remind you of who's in authority and who's in power and control so that you obey them and you, you submit to them. The same thing in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus put idols of himself everywhere in the empire. But in Rome, there was no image of the Roman emperor. And the reason is he was there. They didn't have to go and try to wonder what he looked like. He lived in Rome. And so they didn't have that. And when you see dictators like um, Saddam Hussein and Fidel Castro, they drop big giant banners. We don't put banners of our presidents everywhere because we don't have a government of authoritative absolute power to remind you to stay in check. But they do, they have dictators. They, they put images of their dictators everywhere to remind you who's going to mess you up when you mess up. And that's the idea. Obviously, God is a good and loving God. So this isn't about reminding us who's going to mess you up when you disobey. It's to remind us who we represent. And the idea of image means that we're ambassadors. God has put this creation here, and then he places little images in creation, and then he breathes his spirit into us, and then we represent him on creation. Well, how does God rule and subdue? Well, the first thing we're introduced to God as a ruler and subduer is he brought order. And he brought life. And he lovingly sent his spirit to redeem creation. And then eventually we're going to learn that he will pursue you no matter what in order to redeem you, no matter how gross and vile and rebellious your sins are. And then eventually he will die on the cross for you. That's what it means to be the image of God. To be the image of God is to rule and subdue like God does, to bring order, to bring life, and even if necessary, to die to redeem things from chaos and back to order. That's what it means to rule and subdue, that I enter into creation and I make life thrive and I redeem and I order things. Then we're created to be in his likeness. Likeness is to reflect his character, his love, his justice, his kindness, his gentleness, the fruits of the spirit. When you put these together, we are his image and we are his likeness. And what he's doing, he's putting us in creation in order to continue what he started. Now, does God need us? No. When I go to fix things and repair things, like I had to refix the, the washing machine that broke, and then my daughter fell down the steps and put her head through the wall at the bottom of the steps, so I had to fix that. And I usually let them join me. And when I let them join me, I teach them how to change outlets and a wall and rewire electricity and that kind of stuff. And they do this stuff with me. And inevitably, they slow me down, they screw things up, and sometimes I have to spend more money fixing the thing that they broke. And you're like, but why do you keep doing that, crazy man, if they just keep breaking things and costing you time and money? And it's because they are my daughters. They're my children. I want them to join me. And there's a relationship aspect. I don't need them to fix the drywall, but I want them to join me. Because there's a relationship. When you do things together, there's a relationship bonding thing. And then there's a teaching mechanism there. And then there's an empowerment idea there as well. And so what God does is he doesn't need us to make sure creation stays orderly. He wants us to join him in doing it so that the relationship can be formed. And it's the same thing. He doesn't need you to witness to people and save people. In fact, he can do a better job without us. But he wants you to join him because there's a power of connection and love and growth when you're doing it with him and working side by side. And so this is what it means to be the image of God. 
It means that we're going to rule and subdue like God does, and we're going to join him as his representative so that we maintain the order of creation with God because God is a relational being. Now, the Trinity is not introduced until much later, but even in hindsight, we know that, of course, God is a relational being because he's triune. He's community in himself. Now, he also says male and female, he created them. There are no qualifiers on this statement in any kind of a way. So when he says male and female, he's saying that male and female are both equal. There is no hierarchy of authority between these two things. They're equal to each other. Now, not only that, he says male and female, they're creating the image of God. Well, if the image of God is to rule and subdue, then that means that Eve is just as much of a queen as Adam is a king over creation. And that Adam is not a hierarchy king over the queen because there are no qualifiers on their equality. So they are both equally co-heirs and co-rulers over creation as co-rulers and subduers over creation. And there is no distinction. Now that divide between hierarchy as a result of sin that comes much later. But then when Paul comes, he says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, man or woman in Christ, meaning the equality and the co-reigning has been restored in Christ. Because the same spirit that is in me as a male is the same spirit that's in you as a female, and so we are equals. And we neither one has authority over the other unless we hire you to have more authority because we know that there has to be some kind of hierarchy. But we're not hiring you because you're a male to have more authority. We're hiring you because you're a qualified human to have more authority. And most importantly, that the Spirit has led us to hire you or to appoint you as leader. And so this is co-equalship. So the very first thing that we're introduced to as humans is that we are created to be king and queen over creation. If we're created to be God's image to reflect him, then even the words king and queen are not the best words. The best words are vice regents, vice regents, because he's not creating us to be a monarchy. He's creating us to be a theocracy, meaning the highest authority and king and ruler is God. But the other thing, too, is that God is not neither male or female. The Bible never describes him as male or female in his essence. And you can't say that he's male because he's constantly called male all the time, because we're also told that God is a spirit, that he has no physical body. And if he's going to create males, the males get their masculinity from God. And females get their femininity from God. Now, one of the primary reasons that God is probably called a male is because maleship in their culture communicates authority. And he's trying to communicate the idea that he's authoritative. But there are other places in the Bible where God describes himself in feminine terms. He calls himself El Shaddai, which means the mother of the womb. Then I'm going to provide you children. It means that he's a nurturing, caring, protecting mother that gives birth. In fact, God says that he is El Shaddai, who gives Abraham blessings from the womb. And then even Jacob says, May El Shaddai bless your womb and give you children. And so there's a feminine, even the Holy Spirit is described in feminine terms sometimes. And wisdom, which is God in the book of Proverbs, is described in a female characteristic. Now, I know that might be controversial, like, oh my gosh, you're going transgender on us here. But no, he's not male or female, he's masculine and feminine. He has masculine and feminine traits and attributes, because the only way that females can get their femininity is from God. And we know that even males have femininity in them. 
and they have estrogen. And we know that females have masculinity and testosterone in them. It's just the balance is different. And so that shouldn't be too controversial when you think of it as masculine and femininity. And that masculine terms, you know that when you're using masculine terms sometimes in Spanish and French, it has nothing to do with biology. The idea is that God is this, and therefore both male and female come from him. And that he then creates them to be male and female biologically, which is distinct from God, who is neither male or female biologically. So God is both masculine and feminine and gives these attributes to Adam and Eve to be equals. So then God commands them to increase, to be fruitful and multiply, and to fill the earth. That is them coming together. And so male and female will not only rule together, but they'll create little mini images, little cute little images running around. So in this sense, he's creating a trinity in himself. He's creating male and female and children. And he creates the same community in the physical realm that already exists in the spiritual realm and the triune beings. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Well, why does they need to create images, more images? Because the world's a big world. And you need to get as many little images out there as possible to maintain the order of the universe. And you're like, okay, God, but why do you need somebody to maintain the order of the universe? Because if it's good and it's functioning the way it's supposed to function, and the law of entropy hasn't kicked in yet because there is no sin, then what do they need to maintain? Oh, because there's still chaos out there. And that chaos wants to destroy order. And that chaos is called the serpent. And so there is something that needs to be ruled and subdued. There is something that needs to be maintained. And as many images you can get out there to fill things, then not only does it allow more images to rule and subdue, but it also creates a bigger community, more relationships, because God is a loving relational being. This is what's being communicated here. They are to maintain the order and the goodness functioning the way that it's supposed to function, or functioning the way that it was designed to function, of creation and to reflect the nature and the character of Yahweh in creation. That was the sole purpose of humans. So then on the seventh day, Yahweh entered into and rested in his creation. Now we often talk about the creation count being seven days, and then we're like, when God created the world in the six days, you're like, which one is it? Make up your mind. It's a seven-day creation account. What is being portrayed here is that the creation, or the Garden of Eden specifically, is going to be described as a temple. In fact, the word garden can mean paradise or dwelling, and that's what the temple means, is a dwelling or a paradise-like place. The, The garden has a fence around it, just like the temple has a fence around it. It has one gate in the east, just like the temple has a gate in the east. And the idea that the only people who go in the temple are the humans who are holy and gods, or God. And they dwell together. And that's what you have in the garden. God in the garden and humans in the garden together. What you would do is the pagans would create this temple, and they would build it, and then they would have a six-day ceremony. And in six days, they would have a ceremony dedicating each part of the temple. And then on the seventh day, they would bring the image of the God into the temple. You have a six-day creation account where God is creating this orderly place. And then on the seventh day, he enters into it and he rests in it. But he's not an idol. He is God himself. And he rests in this. 
And so the word rest comes from Shabbat. This is where we get the word Sabbath. And Shabbat means to cease from or to rest. This doesn't mean rest like God was like, whoa, those six days wore me out. I need to recline in my lawn chair and drink some lemonade. Okay, he's not exhausted and tired resting. The word rest means to enjoy. It's the idea of creating something. When I built my daughter's beds, at the end of it, they rested in them. They entered into it. Now, they're not resting because they're exhausted from the building. They're resting in it because that's the purpose of the bed, is to enjoy it. It's the same thing if you build a couch or you build a car or whatever. You then enter into it and you begin to use it in the way that it was designed to use and you enjoy it. And that's what God is doing. He's entering into creation to enjoy it. He created a home where he can dwell with humans. Humans can't dwell in heaven because they're material beings. So he has this idea to create material beings that are both material and spiritual. So he has to create a material and spiritual realm in order to put humans in it so that he can enter and dwell with them. And that's the idea. He creates this and he rests in it. And this is temple language. That he is enjoying it. This is what the Shabbat even means. Shabbat means stop working now and don't do that. Shabbat means to cease from the things that take you away from God and enjoying Him. Why do you do no work on the Sabbath? Because work gets in the way. Work stresses us out. Work overwhelms us. Work is something that we have to do in order to feel good about ourselves or, or to accomplish something or to feel successful or whatever, whatever reason you're doing work. And that's distracting you from enjoying God. And so we take a moment where we rest and we cease from the things that are distracting us from God and we rest in Him. We don't rest and I find meaning in life by being successful at work or I find meaning by being accepted by people at work for what I do. We go to church and we rest in God and we're reminded that my meaning is found in who I am in Christ and in God. And that's the Sabbath rest. And so God is ceasing from this to enjoy it. That's why one man like me goes into the garden and begins to work in the garden, and it is work. It is taking me away from God because I don't like working in the garden. But another man like my friend, he is an accountant every day, and he goes into his garden and he works in the garden, and for him it's incredibly relaxing. And for him he has some of the best encounters with God in prayer times at any other time in his life because that's not work for him. Now, you can justify this all you want. Well, doing my taxes is rest, (laughs) and I need to get it done, so it's rest. No, it's not, because we can abuse and justify anything. At this point, this creation is finally complete, because creation is not complete without God, because the number seven is symbolic of completion. And at the end of the week, seven days, you have a complete week. And so the creation is done being physically built after six days, but it is not complete until God enters into it. Just like you can build your home and it's completely built and all done and the construction workers leave and they give you the keys of the house, but it's not complete as a home until you enter into it and it becomes home. You enjoy it. Until then, it's just a house. It's not home until you enter it. And this is what God is doing. He's creating a home for humans and God to dwell together. And then he's given humans the task of maintaining the home, maintaining order. 
So that's the seventh day. That's the first creation account. It's in the second creation account that we get the other purpose of humans. And they're like, two creation counts? Think of it this way, two perspectives. The Gospels are four Gospels, but they're four different perspectives on the exact same story. So chapter one is one perspective on creation, and chapter two is another perspective. And then when you get put them together, you have a complete perspective, a complete picture of creation. It's like Matthew is a perspective of Christ as king. Luke is a perspective of Christ as the perfect human. And Mark is a perspective of Christ as a suffering servant. And John is a perspective of Christ as God. Now, they all four Gospels talk about those four things. It's just each Gospel emphasizes one thing more than the other in order to paint a picture. So the first account portrays humans as the rulers and subduers of maintaining good, orderly, life-giving creation as vice regents. The second creation account of chapter 2 is the other angle or the other facet not a second creation that God creates, but a second account of how he did it that focuses mostly on the relationship and the love that God has created here. Now, both of them talk about both things. One is just emphasizing the other.